Well, it is good to be with all of you today and those of you that are watching online because you're sick or snowed in or whatever. Uh, we're together and it's great to be together. And I'm curious how many of you are actually familiar with your ancestry, right? You gotta know uh, your roots. And so I'll just take a little poll here of your hands. I'm not gonna hit all of them. Don't send me emails or get mad because I didn't mention you know, your heritage, but let's just, just kind of take a little poll. Uh, any Italian, any Italian background back there? Raise those hands. All right, proud to be Italian. How about some Polish? Got some Polish in the mix. Woo, all right. Some German maybe, yeah, some French. Okay, how about Russian, Ukrainian, Romanian, okay? How about maybe some African, got some African out there? How about some Asian, got some Asian in the mix? How about, where's my Latino brothers and sisters? Got some Latino out there, all right? And we can go on and on and on. Uh, we love to know about our lineage. Now, I've been told um, I'm Scottish, Irish, Italian, all right? And so that means you don't want to argue with me, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I've been told that, the lineage says that. But just like a lot of you and just like the growing population, I'm, I'm kind of curious about taking that ancestry test, you know? And it seems a little weird to spit in something and mail it off, but um, it'd be kind of fun to find that out. So we as a family have sat around the table a couple times and talked about that, like how cool would it be? Because, you know, especially with adoption and our family dynamic, uh, we're, we're all a mix of something, except for our youngest, who's from China. And so one time we were sitting around talking about taking it and what would find, and she's like, yeah, I want to take it too. And we go, we're pretty confident we're going to know the results on this one. Like, <laughs> you're good. You're good, you know. Um, but there's something about us that wants to know our family lineage. We desire to be linked to a people and to a place and celebrate that. And uh, we, so we have this appreciation for genealogies, unless you encounter them in your Bible reading, right? You're cruising, you know how it is, you're cruising through your Bible reading plan, you're excited, you're going through maybe like, like let's say you're going through the gospel, like we are right now, the gospel of Luke, going through the gospel, yeah, the birth of Christ, this is, and then you turn to chapter three, and you're like, what's with all the names, right? And you know who you are, you skim it or you skip it, right? I've done it, you've done it, we're like, oh, genealogy, here we go, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, I don't even know how to say that name, I'm out, you know, and then we're done. But you know what? Uh, when we study the scriptures, we're told by God that all scriptures inspired by God and profitable to us. And so even the genealogies are given to us by God. They're inspired and they're profitable. And so we have a lot that we can learn with the, even the genealogies. And so as we continue to spend time in the book of Luke, today we come to the family tree of Jesus. And as we take some time over the next few months and really try to unpack what we're seeing in the early chapters of Luke, uh, that we see both God as, or Jesus as God, but we also see Jesus as man. And today as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, we're really going to stare the humanity of Jesus in the face a little more today. And when you do that, you get a sense for how real Jesus is. Now right now, some of you maybe feel very distant from Jesus, very distant from God. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and, and you're just kind of, you know, you know your, your relationship with Jesus feels shallow, it feels distant, and, and maybe Jesus doesn't feel real. It's kind of like a, the George Washington effect. Like, you know he's there, you kind of have this head connect to it, but there's nothing going on in the heart. 
Or maybe you haven't come to faith in Christ yet. Maybe you're still kind of spiritually searching and you're trying to figure out what you believe and you're trying to examine the claims of Christ. Uh, I don't know what you're going through, but today as we look at his humanity, it's my hope that as we stare at his humanity in the face, you'll get a greater sense for how real he is and that will draw you into a real relationship with him. That if you already have a relationship with him, it'll take you deeper than you are now. And if you don't have a relationship with him, it'll be one of those things that pulls you into relationship with Christ. Because the humanity of Jesus makes our relationship with him very real. And when Jesus is real to us, we start to experience historical, theological, and personal realities that are only going to be found in him. And so let's open up God's word together today to the book of Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 3 today, starting with verse 23. So open up your Bible or Bible app to Luke 3.23. I'm not going to put the verses on the screen. I'm just going to kind of have a name build because what we're going to look at is the genealogy of Jesus as captured in the book of Luke chapter 3. So follow along. Luke 3.23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel was the head of the tribe of Judah during their return back to Israel from the Babylonian captivity, and he oversaw the rebuilding of God's second temple. And he was the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim. I hope you guys are getting some great names for children, by the way, right now. I saw a lady with oh, Eliakim, that's a good one. I haven't seen that one before, Okay. Well, he's the son of Mila, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, there's King David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin. Those of you who work in Admin, your name is in the Bible, okay? <laughs> All the Admin. The son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. This is the Judah that's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the son of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, right? This is the father of the 12 tribes, uh, who is the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. There's the patriarch, the father of the Hebrew people. The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, yep, the Noah, the ark, the flood, etc., the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahilalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we did it. 77 names. But what's the point? What can we learn from a list of names? Well, when you think about jewels and gold, some of the biggest, best jewels, some of the biggest chunks of gold are buried in the mountain that you've got to dig and mine out. 
And so we're looking at this mountain of names, and we need to dig a little and mine for some significance because there's a bunch there, and we only have time to touch on some of it. But ultimately, all of this, because it's tied to Jesus, is going to point us back to the humanity of Jesus. And so first thing we see is this. Because of the humanity of Jesus, we experience historical realities in Christ. We've got a family tree here with names of actual people. These aren't made-up people. These are real people, including Adam. Like, Adam's not a mythological figure. Adam's not a metaphor for, like, a couple cells that decided just to, like, you know, multiply. Like, Adam was a real person. Jesus, real person, not a figment of our imagination. This is a list of real, actual, historical people. And ancestry was very important in the Jewish culture and in the Bible. As you study scripture, uh, you'll encounter multiple genealogies. Now, ancient societies, uh, if you were to walk into a home, an ancient home, you wouldn't find a hallway with nice framed pictures of all their grandparents and great-grandparents like some of us have, right? But what they did do well was capture and list records of names, their lineage and names. And so your genealogy then determined any right to land, right to possessions, your inheritance. As a Hebrew, if you wanted to be in the priesthood, you had to prove your lineage back to the tribe of Levi. If you were to be in royalty, you had to prove your lineage back to the throne of David. And so your genealogy was especially important. And it would especially be important for anyone waiting for or claiming to be God's promised deliverer, Messiah, Christ. Because uh, you would have to have proven lineage to Abraham to prove your Jewishness, and you'd have to have proven lineage to David to prove your royalty. Now, Jesus, of course, had both. And his human credentials, if you will, are verified in the genealogies we have in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. This is a historical reality for us. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is an autobiographical capturing of the life of Christ through the eyes of an eyewitness. Now, Matthew's primary audience was Jewish. So all he was concerned about was mapping Jesus all the way down to Abraham. And so when you look at the genealogy of Matt in Matthew, it's, it's Jesus to Abraham, 42 names, it's shorter, okay? But then when you look at Luke, who recorded eyewitness accounts from the eyewitnesses, he wanted to tie Jesus all the way back to Adam. Why? Because the primary audience for Luke was Gentile. It was Roman, Greek, pagan. So they're like, hey, Abraham's cool and all, but it meant more to them to see that Jesus was tied all the way back to the first man, which means Jesus is for everybody. He's the Savior for all people, not just Israel. And so we see that. Now, as we read through the genealogy, most of the people mentioned are unknown, or they have a common, you see some repetitive names, right? So there's some common Hebrew Jewish names that are familiar, but they're all significant historical people. Now, a couple clarifiers, just because I know some of you have already read ahead or you've done this before, or maybe you're curious. A couple clarifiers about the genealogies as you digest what we just read in Luke. And this can help you in the future encounter with genealogies. One, not every name's listed in biblical genealogies. They don't, they don't go down every single person. They'll skip through people. The, the main goal is just to keep the lineage line intact. So they'll just put you know, people's names. So you're not going to see every single person. Second, when you see the word son or son of, it has a broader context than just like father, son. It literally means descendant. And so when they say it's the son or son of, that could have been a dad. That could have been an adoptive father. 
That could have been a grandparent, could have been a great-grandparent or a great-great-grandparent. And so just know that when you're reading through those, because if you don't know that, then you start to compare genealogies. You're like, oh, there's contradictions, and it's not. You just have to do the digger deeping. Also, you'll notice here Adam is referred to as the Son of God. Now, obviously, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God because he's the one that was born of the Virgin Mary by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. He truly is the Son of God. So why is Adam called the Son of God? Because Adam didn't have a mom and dad. Adam was created by God supernaturally in his image. And so uh, one of those questions has been floating around. If you've never got the answer, here's your answer today. Did Adam have a belly button? No. He didn't. He was the son of God because God formed him. God made him, right? And so he's the son of God just as we are sons and daughters of God through creation. That's what that reference is in case you guys you know, get stuck on that. Also, if you study the genealogies of Jesus, you know that the one in Matthew and the one in Luke is different. Uh, we definitely see the 42 names in Matthew going back to Abraham. It's almost like Luke was going like, hey, Matthew, that was a great job, man. 42 names, nice work, good job. Here's 77 names all the way back to the first man, drop the mic, boom, done, okay? And so his is longer and more impressive because it goes all the way back to Adam. But what you'll notice if you compare them is that Luke and Matthew's genealogy are the same from David back to Abraham, all right? But they're different when you look at them from Jesus going down to David. If you study the names in Matthew and the names in Luke, they're different. Why? Here's two dominant leading theories and explanations on that. One is this. The Luke's genealogy is tracing the biological lineage of Jesus back to David through Mary's ancestry. Okay, even though her name's not mentioned because that's not typical in patriarchal you know, listings of the family tree, that really what we're seeing here in Luke is Mary's line, uh, that's the biological line, and that Joseph's line is the legal line that we see in Matthew as his adopted father and the heir. That's one view. That's the most common view that a lot of scholars take. I typically lean into that view. A second view, also adopted by very good Bible scholars, is that both Matthew and Luke are both actually Joseph's line. And uh, you've got these two guys. If you go to the book of Matthew, it says he's the son of uh, Jacob. Here you see that uh, it's the son of Heli. Well, which is it? Well, the way that works is they believe that possibly uh, if Heli was the father of Joseph. He died, and his uncle Jacob adopted him, giving him both biological and legal rights that both go to the throne of David. And then uh, that, that's where they worked that around. So if you were to look at that uh, visually, it would look something like this. I just found this slide that seems to fit. So if you look from Adam to Noah to Abraham to King David, you have a clear line, and then you see this break where Matthew records one set of names and Luke records a different set of names. But do you notice, both names all trace back to David. So it doesn't really matter. We don't need to be dogmatic. What we do know is that Jewish scribes are meticulous about capturing names. Uh, they're perfectionists. That was good for them. They captured it. They recorded it. They preserved it for generations. So whether it's Mary and Joseph or Joseph and Joseph, it doesn't matter because both lines take us back biologically and legally to David. So Jesus does have the messianic pedigree that he would need with either one of those views. I hope I didn't lose you. I hope that made sense. All right. Now, as we stare at this list of names, again, we're looking at real names, real people, historical people, which reminds us that when we 
have a real relationship with Jesus, we see the historicity and sense how real he is. Second, when Jesus is real to us, we experience theological realities in Christ. Uh, When you look at a genealogy like this, as you start to mine and dig, you start to see some of the theological meanings come to mind. One of them is the theological reality of the incarnation. The incarnation is God in the flesh. We see that right out of the gate in Luke um, 3.23. It says that Jesus was supposedly, right, supposed as the son of Joseph. Those who did life with Jesus, they hung out with Jesus in Nazareth. They watched him grow up. They met him in the market, whatever it was. They did business with him as a carpenter, whatever it was. They just assumed, oh yeah, that's Joseph's boy. That's Joseph's son. That's his dad. But Luke is alerting the reader that that would be an uh, assumption made an error. Of course, we know why. Why? The virgin birth, right? Jesus is the son of God. Mary miraculously conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the son of God, not really the son of Joseph, but Joseph gives some props here, right? Because he's the adopted father. God loves adoption. I mean, think about, if, if you need to look any further than the value of adoption, God the Father had his own son adopted by Joseph. And it was just beautiful. And so we see that there. Um, also, the virgin birth allowed Jesus to have a nature that was fully divine and fully human simultaneously. That way, Christ was not contaminated by sin. There was no sin nature, no guilt, no moral corruption. So Jesus is God wrapped in flesh the real flesh, incarnation. You know, thinking through that, we see a verse in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? Flesh. It's like there's all this false teaching out there. There's all this religious, you know, perspective out there. Which ones are accurate about Jesus? The ones that say Jesus came in the flesh. And so there was an early religious thinking um, early uh, in Christianity called docetism. And it was a teaching that said, oh yeah, Jesus is divine, but he just seemed human. He appeared human. He didn't have a real body. And so That doesn't match up with the biblical sources, even the unbiblical sources. Jesus came in the flesh. So we can push aside docetism. We can push aside any other mythological type of distortion, like Jesus was a god or a demigod. Like, you know, he's Christ. He's not Thor. You know what I'm saying? This is God wrapped in flesh. This is uh, him using humanity in his plan to save humanity. And so we have the incarnation as one of our theological realities. We also have a theological reality of God's sovereignty, meaning that God's in charge of everything. Here we see this long lineage. God oversees and supernaturally uses people spanning many generations to verify Jesus as the Savior of mankind. Because what God did is he took all these generations, and there's these names, and he made specific promises to people in those names, people names that we've just seen, and then if anyone can fulfill those promises, it's like a giant arrow saying, this is the Savior. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. Well, obviously we know this is true of Jesus. Let me give you a few as a, an example. I'm going to rapid fire through these. Jesus fulfills a promise made to his ancestor, Adam. Look what God says in Genesis 3. He's speaking to the serpent here after the fall. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a reference to the crucifixion and the outcome of the crucifixion. You've got Jesus in Genesis 3, right? So Jesus fulfilled this when he conquered sin and death and Satan on the cross. So fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled a promise made to his ancestor Abraham. In Genesis 22, 18, God said, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. Well, because Jesus died and rose, he blessed all the nations of the earth with a way of forgiveness of sin and salvation. And so we know that heaven is going to be filled with every tribe and nation and tongue. Heaven is going to be the most multi-ethnic environment your mind can ever wrap yourself around, right? And so this is a fulfillment in Christ. Those who come to Christ through faith. Jesus fulfills a promise made to his ancestor Judah. In Genesis 49.10, it says the scepter, which is the symbol of authority and rulership, right? It says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Well, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and he rules and reigns forever. So that's intact, fulfilled. Jesus fulfills a promise made to his ancestor, Jesse. Before I go into that, let me tell you about something that will help with this. So a lot of you know I was in Israel a couple weeks ago planning a trip for our church. And in, in, in throughout uh, Jerusalem and outside areas, you're going to encounter a lot of olive trees, right? And olive trees, even though the stump has been cut or it even looks dead, the roots in the ground are still alive and doing their thing. And so what will happen is, and this is what happened to me, I found this giant like olive tree stump about the size of your coffee table probably. And it looks dead, but then there was this one like fresh, new, stubborn branch, boom, that just like all by itself, it's kind of like I'm taking over, right? It's this fresh root and uh, fresh limb that comes out of the old stump. This is what we see here in Isaiah 11. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, this is his ancestor, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so here's Jesse, here's the line of David, here's the, the ruler in reigning ship, looks dead, and all of a sudden, boom, here comes this ancestor who's going to produce fruit. That's a reference to Christ. In fact, some look at that passage and they see that when the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, like we looked at last week, and landed on Jesus, it was a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit being on him, that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so we see fulfillment from his ancestor, Jesse. Jesus fulfills a promise made to his ancestor, David. A lot of you are familiar with this passage from Christmas. It's not just a Christmas passage, all right? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and then his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here, listen to this part. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be, what's the word say? No end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and, what's the word? forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the obvious fulfillment of these verses, and he's the only one that has a kingdom forever. So when we look at the theological you know, nuggets that are in this genealogy, this is what we see on that whole aspect of God's sovereignty through all generations. In fact, there's another type of fulfillment that God worked out, but he did it a different way. Uh, there's a fulfillment that Jesus kind of works around. 
Now, uh, one of the last kings of Israel was a wicked, wicked guy named Jeconiah. Jeconiah just flooded Israel with pagan worship, just let it all in. He even sacrificed his own children to pagan gods. So God's like, yeah, done with you and done with any of your descendants. None of your descendants will ever sit on the throne of David again. All right, that's what we see. Look at uh, Jeremiah twenty-two thirty. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So no descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne. Guess who's a descendant of Jeconiah? Joseph, as in Mary and Joseph. So if Jesus was a biological descendant of Joseph, he would not have the rights to the throne. This is what I love about how cool and sovereign God is. I'm going to curse the line. No one's going to sit on it. But then I'm going to work around it through the virgin birth. I'm going to work around my own rule. And so we see the virgin birth as God's way of going like, I blocked it, but I went around it myself. This is God's sovereignty. It just reminds us how real he is. Also, the theological reality of our big favorite word in theology, propitiation. Say that 10 times fast. I dare you, all right? Which, if you're not familiar with the jazzy theological word, it means to appease or to satisfy. Our sin has broken our relationship with God. And because God is holy and just, his wrath is aimed at us now. And the outcome of that wrath, the the punishment of that wrath is eternity in hell. And so we cannot advocate for ourselves. We can't get out of this through good works. We can't get out of this by being religious. Uh, So God says, again, there's something in place, but I'm going to work around it. And so he sends himself, the Son, God in flesh, to come, and he's going to be the propitiation. He's going to appease or satisfy God's justice and wrath on our behalf. Look at Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make what? Propitiation. Did you say it right? Maybe you did. For the sins of the people. See, Jesus had to become fully man if he was to represent us and to be our substitute and die in our place. And so when Jesus is real to you, his propitiation, his standing in the gap for you and your sin becomes a reality. He is our mediator between us and God the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man. The man, not the, not the spirit, not, not the apparition, the man Christ Jesus. So over and over and over you'll see these theological truths. Jesus as fully God and fully man is the only one qualified to offer forgiveness of sin. And what's so cool is how Luke does this. He ties it all the way back to Adam. He says this is a universal offer of salvation. It's not just the Jewish Savior. He's the Savior of the world. And he ties it all the way back to Adam. See, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam um, messed things up, Jesus fixed it. Where Adam flooded us with death, thank you very much, Jesus flooded us with life. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, all die. Thank you, Adam. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thank you, Christ. For those who believe in, who trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection, we go from death to life. We say around here a lot, new life in Christ. So Jesus fixed what his ancestor, Adam, broke. These Theological realities remind us that uh, 
God chose to redeem humanity by becoming human. This makes Jesus very real to us. And so, see what I'm saying? There's so much in this genealogy when you start to study the names and start to attach it to what Jesus has done for us. So we have historical realities, we have theological realities, and lastly, when Jesus is real to us, we also experience personal realities in Christ. When you look at this list of names in this genealogy, and you trace Jesus all the way back to Adam, you find names of people that we admire, names of people that we look up to as models of our faith, but we also know that if you drill down deeper into this mountain of ancestry, we're going to find some pretty jacked up people and situations. Uh, We all know where Adam went wrong, right? Adam, you know, broke everything. Thanks, buddy. Noah was pretty fond of drinking. Tira, Abraham's daddy, was a worshiper of pagan gods. Abraham had a little problem of distorting the truth to save his own bacon, and he was dull enough to take his wife's terrible advice of sleeping with her servant so that they could have a child. Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, had a pattern of deceiving his family to get what he wanted. We have uh, Judah here. Judah was a piece of work. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, right? Now, if you don't know the story, she kind of tricked him into it. So he's off the hook, right? No, because he thought she was a prostitute that he was trying to hook up with, all right? This is Judah. And speaking of prostitute, we see Boaz in the line. Well, Boaz was a godly and gracious man, but his mom, Rahab, was also a prostitute. And then, of course, we've got David, that although he loved God, you got that whole David and Bathsheba thing, right? And if you're not familiar, David abused his power as king. He seduced and took a woman named Bathsheba who was married, slept with her. She got pregnant. He tried to cover it up and he ended up having to kill her husband off to cover his own mess. And then on top of that, David was a passive dad. Like, there was so much infighting and depravity in his own family line that it carried on long after he was dead. So we can find it personally comforting that Jesus, our Jesus, God and man, had some serious dysfunctions in his own family tree. (laughs) It doesn't stop God's work. You know what's so cool about that? It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you come from. And it doesn't matter what's been in your past. You're not disqualified from God using you. You're not disqualified from God using your family. And so the past is in the past. You've got new life now, and you walk forward. God, in his power and grace, works through our mistakes. He works through the mistakes of our families and our histories for his glory. What a great personal reality for us when we know Jesus. So also, because Jesus took on flesh, he not only redeemed us, he also relates to us. Uh, There's a passage I want you to look at with me on the screen, Hebrews 4.15. Speaking of Christ, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to what? Sympathize, right? He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now next week we're going to look closer at the temptation of Christ, but for our purposes now, we see that in his humanity, Jesus sympathizes with us. God came down from heaven as a man. He was born as a human being. 
He lived like us. He worked like us. He experienced being tired and hungry and thirsty. He knew the company of good friends. He knew the agony of loneliness. He cried. He laughed. He experienced emotional pain. He experienced physical pain. God was not afraid to get close to us. He lived like us in every respect except for sin. And so Christ sympathizes with experiences that are common to us. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? So was Jesus. Have you ever lost someone you cared about to death? So did Jesus. Have you ever been slandered or rejected? So was Jesus. Did you ever experience physically intense, excruciating pain? So did Jesus. See, Jesus gets you. Jesus gets what you're going through. He's not just over and above all the events of our life. He knows what it's like to be in it. He knows. And that's what's so cool about Jesus is then he becomes very real to us. He's not just kicking back in heaven going like, yeah, it must really stink to be you. Like he understands. He sympathizes. And so when we embrace the humanity of Jesus, he becomes very real. And our relationship with him becomes very real. You know, there's one other personal reality I see here is kind of a cool one. It's one that we see in the Luke passage in the beginning. How old did it say Jesus was when he started his ministry? About 30, right? It's good. Uh, I'm going to, a little, little, little quiz here, okay? If you were to read through Numbers 4 or Numbers 8, when it came to the Levitical priest, guess how old they had to be to begin the ministry? Any guesses? 30, all right? Uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Guess how old Ezekiel was when he started his ministry as a prophet? Any guesses? You guys are straight A students. You're amazing. <laughs> Joseph, not, not Mary and Joseph, but Joseph that ruled over Egypt. Any idea how old he was when he started ruling over Egypt? 30. 30. Guess how old David was when he became king over all of Israel? 30. You see a pattern here? See, when you think about ministry, sometimes it's easy to go like, oh, like going into ministry, being used by God, that's kind of like the young man's game. Like you start young and then, uh-uh. It's not what you see here. That's not the pattern in the Bible you see. You see God activating people to greater ministry in the middle and even in the latter years of their life. It goes against kind of that like retired, like we don't ever spiritually, this is Rick Duncan's message. If you guys know our, our founding pastor, Rick Duncan, he'll come up here and amen me all night long about like, no, we don't retire from being used by God. He just uses us at whatever age we are to be useful for. So as followers of Christ, we're called to make disciples, just in case you missed that, I want to read. As followers of Christ, we've been called by Jesus to make disciples. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could be comfortable, but so that we could be fruitful. And so our mission is to multiply disciples. Our life's calling is to glorify God by multiplying disciples, to be disciplers. And some of you have been or are being stirred by God to do more for him in a ministry capacity, maybe as a life group leader, maybe as a church planter, maybe as a missionary or a, a pastor or a ministry director. But you somehow think, oh, that ship has sailed or it's too late in the game or you, you have some other reason for it. You open up scripture and find a scriptural basis for whatever excuse we hold on to to not be used by God. Good luck. And so we see this personal application come through. There's not this age limit. In fact, God tends to activate people at greater use middle and later years. 
So if you were here and watched that video, Pastor Don, and come on, the guy is a banker. He's in the middle of his life. He's got a job, but God stirred him to also be a church planter. Now he's also pastoring at a church, and God's using him to make a difference. They've got four more baptisms tonight they're going to be doing. You know, God's using them. You've got a brother, uh, Pastor Jeff, that we just celebrated his faithfulness a minute ago. Like Jeff could say, like, I'm good. I've got my job. I like what I'm doing. I like my community. I'm good. I push buttons. I'm behind the scenes, whatever. But God's been stirring in him. Like, I want to teach more. I want to, I want to be pastoring more. I want to do more. And there's limited opportunity here. So I'm going to go somewhere else. It'd be easier for Jeff to say, never mind. I'm good. And so he's being courageous and stepping out. Some of you, it's time. It's time. Whatever that looks like. And you know what it is because you and God have been talking about it. But it's time for you to step up and step out. If that's something that God is stirring in your heart, we'd love to help you. In your response card, uh, you got that section there. If you feel like God's calling you into some sort of greater ministry exploration, fill it out, put your name, contact info on there, turn it in the baskets here and say, just let's have a conversation, see what God's putting on your heart. You know, these are just a few personal realities that come along when we realize that Jesus is real. See, Jesus is both God and man. And the humanity of Christ makes our relationship with him very real. And if I were just to summarize that and distill that down for something that we can hold on to today, this is what I want you to remember from our time. Jesus is real, and you can have a real relationship with him. A real relationship. Okay, I want to talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ for a minute. Some of you have just not been walking in a real relationship with Jesus. He's just been an accessory in your life. You know, a while back, I was having a conversation with one of my kids, and I was a teenager, and, um, and they were talking about some people at school, and they mentioned a couple of people, said like, oh yeah, they have a thing. I'm like, what do you mean they have a thing? Oh yeah, they, they got this thing. I'm like, what, are they boyfriend, girlfriend? Oh no, no, no. Well, are they friends? Well, a little bit more. They just have this thing. I'm like, what is that? Like, you know, your friends, grow up like there's this nebulous thingness, right? Okay? And so here's the thing. Some of you, you're having a thing with Jesus. You're just having a thing. Oh, no. I, I just, I, hey, I, I prayed a prayer. I'm doing my thing. Do you have a thing? You, you don't need a thing with Jesus. You need a life-transforming, life-altering relationship. He's real. Some of you need to stare at the humanity of Christ and be drawn into deeper places. Here's a bold ask. Is it possible that you could leave here today as a Christian and actually get closer to Christ than you have ever been before in your entire life? That the word of God would be so live and vibrant, you would hang on every word because you're smitten by your Savior. Is there more room for intimacy? Is there more room for closeness? Is there more room to be real with Jesus? And if there is, here's my ask. Would you take the steps to do that. Sure, more time in the word, more time in prayer, but sometimes it's just the will of the heart to go, I'm not going to settle for less. Jesus is real. My relationship with him needs to be more real, so here it goes. Also, maybe you're here watching online and you don't actually have a relationship with Jesus. You know what's so cool? God has invited you into relationship. He's invited you into this relationship. And so whatever has been stopping you, you don't have to let it stop you anymore. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner, turn from your sinfulness and say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death on the cross. I believe that he rose from the grave and now I'm going to commit my life to following him. And you just do that. 
And we're going to pray here in a minute. We're going to pray through some of these things. And if you respond to Christ today in the same way, rip off that card. We want to celebrate with you. We want to come alongside you. Give us a phone number. Give us an email so that uh, those of us who have been where you've been can just say, here's how to grow. Here's how this relationship is going to feel even more real. And let us know by turning that in the baskets here in a few minutes. And for those of you who you've been dodging the call, don't dodge anymore. Just step out. Be courageous. See what God has for you. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite Jeff to come up and join me in prayer. He's going to pray over those of you who are feeling a greater call to ministry. Let's pray together today. Lord, thank you that you're real. You're not fake. You're not a figment of our imagination. Your word is real. Jesus, you're real. You're really God, and you're really man. We confess that we haven't always taken the consideration of your humanity to the depths that we can, and embraced how real you truly are. So Lord, please help us to move beyond that. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that today will be a defining day. That they will not be satisfied with a thing with the Savior of the world, but a real relationship. So God, move in their hearts, move in their lives, draw them to where they need to be to experience just how real you are. And Lord, I pray for our friends here that don't know you as Savior. And that's you, again, even in this moment, you can just say, I admit that I'm a sinner. I put my belief in Jesus Christ. I believe he's real. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. I believe he rose from the grave. And I commit my life to following him. Take that first step of faith. And if you've been feeling a nudge for ministry, um, I've asked Jeff to pray over you today and close our time. Father, I thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit here. I thank you that you are present and real and moving in our lives and in our hearts, Lord. And I pray for those who have heard your call before and somehow found a way to excuse it. Right now, by your Holy Spirit, you're quickening the pace of their heart. And they're feeling that calling in their heart deeper and deeper than they ever have, Lord. And I pray, Father, that they would answer yes. That they would say, Lord, I am yours. I am completely dependent upon you for whatever you have, no matter the cost. Be it ministry within this church, in this town, across this nation or around the world, that they'll hear you and that they'll respond and say, yes, Lord, here I am, send me. So, Lord, move, move mightily in our lives today. Don't let us walk away from here the same. Pour yourself out. Quicken the pace of our heart and draw us to yourself. We love you, Lord. We look forward to what you're going to do, and we commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we prepare our hearts to continue in worship. Uh, we're going to be receiving our offering in just a little bit, not right now, but uh, this is a good time to prepare those cards if you want to communicate something to us. And uh, anytime we receive our offering, just a reminder, when I touch the baskets, it's a kind of a reminder that our life is an offering to live for the Lord. Also, it's a time to just declare our dependence on God that he provides for us. And also, it's an investment to God's work in Northeast Ohio and beyond into ministries like 
Don Salo and others. And so let's worship and be the offering, but also let's receive our offering shortly as well. Let's worship.